Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, December the 22nd, 2022. We're getting towards the end of the year, the dusk of 2022. And as Hegel famously said, not about 2022, but about history in general, the Owl of Minerva reveals itself at dusk. And I wonder if we're beginning to get a better sense of 2022 right at the end of the year. Martin Wolf had an interesting piece this morning. Um, Martin's an old friend, someone who's been on the show before. He has a new book out, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. But even Martin, who tends to be relatively pessimistic, is seeing now glimmers of light that Hegelian owl of Minerva maybe is not quite as dark as we thought she was. I've uh, done a number of conversations over the last few days about uh, 2022. Tony Hiss, I talked to this morning, um, one of America's leading thinkers on the environment. He has some good things to say about what happened, for example, at COP15. Uh, most countries, every country, with the prominent exception, of course, of the United States, signing on to a, a sweeping deal to protect nature. So we tend to be deeply pessimistic about the environment, but maybe that's just uh, uh, instinctive and, and, and doesn't reflect reality. The same is true of uh, economics. Uh, I talked earlier in the week to Brad DeLong, one of America's leading economists, teaches at UC Berkeley, the author of the Grasping Reality newsletter, and of slouching towards utopia, he actually suggested that 2022 has been a reasonable year for economic progress, particularly in America, and credits Joe Biden with it. Uh, so things aren't perhaps quite as bad as we like to think. Um, our guest today is an old friend of the show, Jonathan Rausch. Um, he is the author of a highly well-received uh, book, uh, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. He writes about politics and truth, and he's joining us from Washington, D.C. John, let's start um, on the truth front. Has 2022 turned out to be a year not quite as unfriendly to truth as we feared in the middle of the year? Well, we'll see how things turn out with, with Twitter. By the way, Andrew, it's lovely to be back on the show and good to see you as always. And you're the only host who quotes Hegel on the Owl of Minerva. Uh, thank you for that. I only do it for you. <laughs> I know. You're, you're a chum. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens with Twitter, which is, of course, you know, in, in, in a state of complete chaos right now. But, but one of the many encouraging things that happened in 2022 is that election deniers got nowhere in the midterm elections in the larger narrative in the courts everywhere they turned with the attempt to foment a propagandistic set of lies that undermine our democracy they were blocked and they were blocked not just by the courts and not just by congress uh, but by the american public in key jurisdictions which refuse to elect them to office in swing states where they may have made a difference. And, and that will get noticed. That will be helpful in terms of discouraging this kind of all-out propaganda warfare in further elections. So yeah, I think on balance, we'll see what Elon Musk does, but, but on balance, it's pretty encouraging. 
John, you're also on the show um, in July, imagining and fearing a post-democratic America. You say that the midterms rejected uh, the lie, the great lie about the American election. But some people might say, well, they still uh, the Republicans still got almost 50 percent of the vote and we still have a very uh, balanced Congress. Um, do you think that there's been a, a rethinking within the Demo within the Republican Party? You had an influential op-ed at the beginning of the year with Pete Wayne, another old friend of the show, saying that we need to worry a lot more about what's happening within the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. Do you think that 2022 is the year that the Republicans mostly have come to their senses? No, I, I wouldn't go that far. Um, I like the way Martin Wolf puts it in the intro to this show, glimmers of light. Republicans are still a, a deeply corrupted party. Um, it is still quite possible that Donald Trump, in fact, right now I'd say it's probable that he would be their next nominee. Anyone who runs... Probable, you still think, even in late December? Well, maybe probable is too strong, but I think he's... Conceivable. He's got, more than conceivable. I'd say not a 50% chance, but a better chance than any other single candidate. And the reason for that is if the field is divided, as it was in 2016, if a lot of people enter against him, then the Republican primaries are structured in a way. So you can win with 30% of the vote if everyone else gets 25. So the way you'd have to beat him would be to, to consolidate the field very quickly, have one major opponent, have the party rally to that person. No one looks like that person right now. Maybe Governor DeSantis, probably not. So it's possible that Trump does the same thing in 2024 that he did in 2016, which is win with a plurality, despite the fact that the party doesn't want him. And then if he's running against Joe Biden again, we'll see. Biden will be what at that point, 82 or something? What, what's your take on DeSantis? I mean, we still don't know a great deal about him. It's mostly speculative. Um, is he return to more traditional republicanism and uh, an acknowledgement of democracy and of its constitutional foundations? You know, I've never met the man. I'd like to. He's not a return to the previous normal. I think, you know, the, what we used to think of as the traditional Republican Party, the the normal Republican Party, which would, you know, it would run the local car dealer for a house seat. And that person would be, uh, you know, mainstream and moderately conservative and business oriented. That's gone. That's dead. So DeSantis is something new. He'll have to be a hybrid because half of the party still is deeply invested in Donald Trump. Um, he'll have to nod in that direction. He's in Florida what people say about him is that his policies are center to center right. And what he's really good at is trolling and triggering the left. So what he's able to do is take these positions that have a lot of mainstream support and seem reasonable while getting his opponents extremely hyped up and angry. So he's a combination of Trumpian trolling and the kind of center right policy. I don't know what that adds up to yet. A lot of people think he has a glass jaw. They say in person he's kind of weird and kind of Asperger's-y, doesn't relate well to people, won't do well on the stump. Uh, have you met him, by the way? I have haven't met him. him. I'm not sure. Uh, he has an open invitation to come on the show. It was interesting when I was talking to Brad DeLong, he argued that um, the Republicans don't have an economic policy. Um, 
and we joked about them being the party of dismal unscience. Uh, and I, <laughs> yeah. I asked him about DeSantis, and I think he, he reflects that. He seems to think that he can just run on culture war issues, um, which, of course, you're you're very knowledgeable about. Do you think that this descent into culture wars is by definition an embrace of untruth? No, no, not by definition. There are real problems with the, the radical left. It is not true that the left has captured the Democratic Party. I think we've had clear evidence of that this past year. What the Democrats have been doing is right down the center of the party. Joe Biden is a, is a center-left Democrat. But yeah, there are real problems with extremism on the far left. Uh, there are real problems on campus. The Republicans are not wrong about that. Uh, but it's it's not enough for them to win the presidency on. And I think Brad is is exactly right. You know, they didn't have a platform in 2020. Uh, they just said, you know, wh whatever Trump says is our platform. It's hard to see how they get a platform in 2024 because they know what they're against, not what they're for. You're kind enough to credit me with my reference to Hegel, so I'll refer to him again. He, of course, spoke about the zeitgeist, this moment where everyone seems to just agree on stuff and some sort of uncanny nature of history. Do you see that in D.C. Uh, broadly, that people are beginning to feel a little bit more optimistic, um, that spring has come early, perhaps in December 2022? Your optimism or your cautious optimism, Tony Hiss, Brad DeLong, a lot of people seem to be cheering up. And I wonder whether it's in the water, in the air, where it's all coming from. Well, some of it is is just objective reality, at least for people who are who are proponents of, of liberal democracy and the rule of law and the rule of truth. We had a series of positive events. Now, one of them begins, of course, with a terrible event, and that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But we saw a country and a leader rally in support of that democracy. And we saw Western Europe and the United States rally in support of him. Um, and we've seen a tremendous, um, we've seen a lot of resilience in liberal democracy pushing back. And so that's, that's the first thing that we saw. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. We, we did a, a com, uh, we had um, Mice uh, Kizalowski from uh, the Central European University on this morning, who was nervous that he wouldn't be around. None of us would be around in late 2023. He still believes in the danger of a, a nuclear apocalypse. So not everyone is quite as optimistic as you or, um, or Brad DeLong or, or Martin Wolf. Well, be careful about the word optimism, hopeful. Cautious, like cautious. Yeah, cautious, you know, Putin could Or not at least apocalyptic. World. I mean, do you think that there will, it became a little too fashionable to be so profoundly apocalyptic and it fits into a certain sort of zeitgeist, particularly amongst young people, John? Is that something we should be concerned with? Yes and no, yes. And that there, there has been, you're quite right, a fashion for cynicism, a fashion for being being discouraged about institutions, magnifying flaws of America, forgetting how, how fortunate we are. But on the other hand, part of what's in the zeitgeist, as you aptly put it, we have been in a very dark tunnel since 2016, since the beginning of the Trump era. 
era and since Brex Putin began doing what he's doing, the democratic recession around the world, we have been in the period of the most severe stress for our system of the rule of law, liberal democracy since the 1930s, and that did not end well. And there is a sense now that maybe maybe the worst is over. Now, that's not the same as saying, you know, where we've come out and out of the, uh, the poppies to the land of Oz. Uh, but it is a change, and that is sparking this sense of, well, perhaps we can start looking to the future instead of just feeling like we're in a defensive crouch against the latest over-the-top, bizarre, unprecedented attack on values like truth and the rule of law. It's interesting you mention um, Brexit. I, I was never convinced that Brexit represented any kind of crisis. It was uh, a bad decision. Uh, but it does reflect the problems with referendum, direct referendum. As you mentioned Musk earlier as well and his acquisition and corruption of Twitter, do you think we should be concerned with Musk's attempt to transform Twitter into some sort of engine of referendum? You know, I, I, I hope this, this won't sound... Um too cynical or, or detached, but but I can't bring myself to care all that much about Twitter. You know, I've, I'm on there and I look at it, um, but but honestly, aren't we getting a little bit too wound up a, about all of this? Um, so maybe, you know, I'm not a real fan of Twitter. I think if it died tomorrow, the world would not be substantially poorer and might be better. I off. think it actually would be, I, I tend to agree. I think it would be better. Do One thing that you do care about, I know John, uh, 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 gender politics, politics of um, uh, of, of sexual gender uh, equality. Uh, you wrote an interesting piece in the Post this summer on the Defense of Marriage Act and on abortion. What kind of year has it been uh, on the uh, the gender front, on the sexual equality front? Obviously, we have the abortion issue. Has it been gloomy, or are there again glimmers of hope? Glimmers, glimmers of hope. Um, now, the, the biggest event in the American culture wars, without question, is the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade and opening the door for states to ban abortion. And we have seen states do that. What we have also seen, however, is that critics who said, well, it won't matter, it won't hurt the Republicans, we won't see any mobilization against that, have been wrong. We saw that um, voters who support choice, I'm on the fence, by the way, I should say that. This is a hard issue for me. But that we on are abortion. having the national, on abortion, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, but we are having the national debate that, that we need to have. Uh, we are seeing Democrats and pro-choice voters um, are coming out and making a difference. So on balance, I would say that's not a, that's not a bad thing. Um, on two other fronts, I think we're seeing well, one is undisputed progress, and that's gay rights. I am talking to you in a country that has been transformed from a place where everyone thought it was absurd not that long ago, in the you know, first decade of this century, for, for me to want to be married to a man, to a country in which a bipartisan majority of Congress, including many Republicans, voted overwhelmingly to make same-sex marriage, to, to embody that in federal law, and to couple it with some new and very important protections for religious liberty, an advance of rights for both sides, a breakthrough, kind of a miracle maybe, 
So on that front, it's just an unequivocal celebration. And then there's the third issue you mentioned, and that's gender politics. So gender politics, here again, I think the news is cautiously optimistic. And, and the reason I say that, Andrew, is um, for a number of years, the gender debate was dominated by a group of radical gender activists. You could, you know, they sometimes call themselves gender. Did not believe, for example, in sex difference. Declared themselves to be male or female. That was the end of the argument. No one could ask questions. And to even dispute that was a form of violence and you could lose your job. That debate has now opened up. We're seeing articles in places like the New York Times and the mainstream media, which are which are finding correctly. But this argument is a lot more um, The radical gender activists are losing their chokehold on the debate. Britain's ahead of us there, as you may know. Um, but that's also a positive sign. We're starting to see that debate happen. So same thing, grounds for, grounds for hope. What can we learn on the, um, the Marriage Act? Um, and as you say, you call it a miracle, but it wasn't a miracle. The America's acceptance of, of the right for men to marry men, women to marry women. Well, was it a miracle? Seemed like that, you know, if you grew up in my world, 1960. Yeah, you were, you were, I take it as a miracle from your point of view, but miracles are religious events with sort of... I, with, I take uh, your point. With metaphysical so, qualities. This was so, real, this was political. <laughs> This, this was rich, right, and it was the result of some very hard work over a long number of years. But, but here's one of the, to me, figuratively miraculous things about it. The reason that the Respect for Marriage Act passed with bipartisan majorities is that it garnered the support and the work, the shoe leather work over years of, are you ready for this, the National Association of Evangelicals, the Union of Orthodox uh, Jewish Congregations, the now get this the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and more all of these religious groups oppose same-sex marriage but they decided to pitch in and work on a bill which defended it while also on their own religious ability to go in a different direction that's the way pluralism is supposed to work um, and what we saw was a resounding vote of confidence we saw Virtually every Democrat on Capitol Hill say we are holstering the weapon of taking tax breaks away from religious groups if they disagree on gay marriage. This was a big step away from the culture wars at a time when, you know, if you had asked me three months ago, would we take a big step away from the culture wars and make peace on this issue? I would have said, what are you smoking? Yeah, I actually agree with you on the abortion front. I mean, anyone on the fence, it's rather uncomfortable position. Yeah. But I, I don't quite understand why people argue that the end of Roe versus Wade represents the end of American democracy. I mean, it's a legit, you might not like the decision, but it's a legitimate decision to take, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, as, as I often say, I'd be curious for your views on this, but as I, as I often say on the, the issue of abortion itself, if anyone thinks it's obvious, they haven't thought about it seriously. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a morally complicated issue um it's it's really hard and it needs to be debated and roe versus wade in the early 70s foreclosed that debate too early and i'm glad that debate will happen i think we'll wind up actually kind of where europe is which is a lot of 
a lot of states will ban abortion after about 15 weeks and we'll reach something of a consensus. Are you concerned? We had Catherine Stewart on the show, who's much more pessimistic. She's an expert on religious nationalism on the right. And she's particularly fearful of the Catholic takeover of the Supreme Court. Is that something that concerns you? Not the and when Catholic I say takeover, I mean, that's probably in a rather unfair way of putting it just a, yeah yeah that a is a disproportionate number you know, of catholics uh, on the church on the court i was going to say church on the on the church but actually on the court yeah well i'm careful of that line of argument because you know we've got jews on the court um i have thought for years that there'd be more non non-legal professionals on the court more law, non non-judges you know we used to have governors on the court we used to have people with political experience so i'm concerned about that I'm concerned about the division of the court into these two fairly clear blocks of six, well, five pretty hard conservatives and three pretty hard liberals and Justice Roberts running in, in and out between them trying to make peace. So I'm a bit concerned about that. Um, I'm not super worried about it as an institution because it still seems that they're working hard to keep themselves harnessed to law. But yeah, they've been aggressive and they've been conservative in that. You know, I don't mind that they're conservative, but I kind of do mind that they're aggressive. The court's role in American society should should not be to be in the forefront of our political debates. Would you like to see a, an openly gay Supreme Court justice? Yeah, I suppose. I'd like to see an openly gay anything, but... President? We'll get there. You know, we may have... Of course, Pete Buttigieg might run for president if Biden doesn't. And Jared Polis, who's a very popular and successful governor of Colorado, is openly gay. Um, he might be presidential tamper. So we'll see. Are you are you just taking it for granted that, I mean, he'll announce in the new year, it seems like he, he will run Biden? That seems very likely, yes. People and if know he more doesn't, it everything do changes, the, right? Yeah, well, that's right. The whole the whole field opens up and, you know, we're, we're ready for that for heaven's sake. You know, we've had baby boom presidents and now we've got a, a silent generation president for what, 30 some years. So yeah, the American public does not want to see a rerun of Trump versus Biden. You know, that would be very alienating for the, the voting public. But Is people who know Biden better of, than I do say he'll Again, not. coming back to, to Hegel, uh, uh, since he's on our mind these days, um, is there something odd about the return to an old man from the baby boomers as American president? How do we make sense of it in historical, chronological terms? Is this a, an odd thing to happen? Is it something that doesn't really matter? Or does it reflect the contradictions of American culture and mm -hmm. politics? That's an interesting question. I don't have a grand theory of that, but, but I thought, you know, when... When Biden was elected in 2020, it was kind of on the assumption that he would be a transition away from Trump, um, that he would be about as normal as a president could be, and that he was a very known quantity. He'd been in Washington since, what, 1972. And as a transitional figure, that step back toward an earlier generation made sense. Um, you know, does it make sense for a second term? You tell me. What would you like to see, John, in uh, 2023? Would you like to see Donald Trump, for example, go to jail or at least end up in a criminal court? Well, odd you should mention it. I, I just I'm just finished an op-ed piece that I'm trying to, to get published saying that um, 
You know, I was one of the people who thought it would be traumatic for the country for a sitting president to put a former president on trial, and we just don't do that. But Trump's Trump's excesses, malfeasances, uh, breaches of law have become so blatant and so severe that it's just impossible to ignore them without simply blessing the idea that a president and then an ex-president can do whatever he wants. So my current view is on the evidence we have, he's going to have to be tried, but that President Biden should announce preemptively, sooner the better, that he intends to commute any sentence that Trump receives so that the former president will never serve a day in jail on a federal charge. There'd be no point in dragging a former president off in irons. By that point, he'll be, he'll be an octogenarian. He'll be politically destroyed. Uh, a verdict against him, a trial, let's find the facts, let's see if he broke the law, let's get a jury to deliberate on it, let's do all that, but but let's not put him in jail. So that's that's my current view. John, what did do Trump think? do any I good at all? Um, oh, oh, again, in historical terms, you know, we once thought Harding was a great president. Um, we did. Nixon was once considered a good president. We've done some shows on China, for example, did one with Orville Schell, who acknowledges that Trump was right on China and everyone's followed. Have you, I mean, leaving aside his criminality and his personality. Um, <laughs> other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. Other than that, Mrs. Will, uh, Mrs. Lincoln. But um, looking back now at the Trump presidency, is there anything that we can learn from that even Joe Biden could learn from? Oh, sure, sure. Um, Trump did some things right. He did some things I like. I agree with the pivot on China. I don't think China is a mortal enemy, but I think it is becoming an adversary. Uh, though I think that was in the air and would have happened anyway. I liked Trump's, the Trump administration's changes of policy on universities and the way that they were, um, that the previous, that the Obama administration was, was running sexual harassment policy, which was far too inconsiderate of defendants. I thought the move to of the embassy to Jerusalem was overdue, not only in substance, but other presidents had promised it and not done it. Well, they promised that they should do it and, and Trump did. Um, there's some other things that, that I could praise and would praise about Trump's record, but of course, you know, they, they just don't come close to, to offsetting the polarization, the division, the mismanagement of the pandemic the attempt to overthrow the United States government, the attack on truth, uh, one can go on and on. So I, I don't know, uh, you know, Harding has had a little bit of a resurgence, maybe wasn't so bad. Nixon has his defenders, I'm not among them, but, but boy, it's hard to see Donald Trump getting out of the same box with James Buchanan and Andrew Johnson, just right down there at the bottom. What else would you like to see, Joan, in 2023? What other, what other developments would make you even more cautiously optimistic? Well, as we said, it probably won't happen, but I prefer that Joe Biden announce that one term is enough um, for a bunch of reasons. Um, I think people who know him, I don't know him at all, but people who do say the only people who could make that happen are his wife and his sister. Uh, if, if Jill and his sister said, look, Joe, rest on your laurels, spend time with your grandchildren. Um, so I'd like to see that. That would make me, I think that would be healthy for politics and it would be healthy for the Democrats. It may even um, be healthy that, for the Republicans as well, in, a, in an odd way. Good for the country, I think, yes. That would be the top of my wish list. 
I'd also like to see the expansion of what are called the Abraham Accords in the Middle East to Saudi Arabia and some other countries. Uh, I think that would be good. I'd like to see Russia, if not defeated, then at least stymied in a way that forces Vladimir Putin to give up what he's trying to do. That would be a huge win for NATO, obviously for Ukraine, and it would save a lot of lives and it would teach the world a lesson and it might keep the Chinese from invading Taiwan. So that would be way up there on my wish list. And what about China policy? Are you sympathetic to Biden's chip warfare? You know, I'm also a bit on the fence about China. Um, China is not the kind of adversary that the Soviet Union was. I'm not sure it's really an adversary at all. I don't think it, it has designs on taking over the world and imposing global communism. Um, it's a bad system. It's, it's a rotten and evil system. Um, and it's one that is increasingly imposing its will in its region. So we need to worry about it. But I also want to be careful about jumping ahead and imposing the kinds of sanctions that create unnecessary friction. So that's, to me, that's a tightrope. That's just a hard line to walk. And I, I guess I'd say I'm not an expert on China policy, but, but I think I'd say the Biden administration is doing that about as competently as one would hope an administration could do. But we'll see. And what about, John, finally, and perhaps the most important thing, developments within the American Republican Party, or certainly on the right amongst American conservatives, what would you like to see in 2023 if we're to save are democracy? We talk, and Are truth? we talking what I really want to see, or are we talking real life? Because those two answers are different. Both. I mean, you well, can what I'd like to see is a belated realization that Donald Trump was a terrible misadventure. I'd like to see a moral abandonment, not just a political abandonment. I'd like to see Republicans but apologize hasn't that happened? for I mean, basically, him. McConnell's done that, I mean, in his own way. Well, he kind of has, but I was, I was, the second part was, was what we might see is, I don't think we'll see a kind of moral reckoning. Um, we will see a political reckoning, and we are seeing that. They're moving away with him, but, but they're moving away from him because he's a loser not because he's a minister who's a danger to democracy. Is that good enough? Well, a lot better than, than embracing him. So I'll take it if that's the best I can get. Yeah, and if the scientist is, half of its base is some people Trumpy. suggest he is, um, are there others in the party? Rubio, for example? Who could be different from who him? Could or who could put the thing back together again, make it, a party that respects democracy and the constitution? The honest answer to that is, I don't see anyone at present, um, but we can hope. The, the people, a lot of the people who would have undertaken the project of really pulling the Republican party back into the democratic mainstream have left the party or been voted out of office. Uh, there's there's you only a Cheney handful. and Kinzinger. Yeah, Cheney, Kinzinger, uh, you know, there's a handful who have, who have won, um, Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger in Georgia. Uh, there's the very brave county officials in Arizona who stood up against Stop the Steal. So the profiles are out there, profiles and courage. But in the Republican Party itself, have we seen anyone emerge as a real center of gravity who can say, look, we got it wrong. Um, let's go back to democracy. Let's double down on that. Let's go back to economic policies for, for all Americans. Um, that's how we win. Build a new coalition based on better policies and the rule of law and the rule of truth. Now, I, I haven't seen that. Have you? 
Um, I haven't. Well, you you talk to some Republicans. There again, glimmers, but glimmers. Yeah, uh, it depends on who is the the nominee. If John, finally, if um, if Trump did win the nomination and Biden ran again, w wouldn't that trigger the inevitability of a serious third party candidate? It might. I wouldn't say inevitable. Uh, you know, the stakes are very high. In well, as time. inevitable as anything can be in politics. Yeah, not even that inevitable. The stakes will be so high. You know, so many Democrats will feel so energized about defeating Trump. Um, and, and, and so much will be on the line for the parties that, that there will be real hesitation about a third party. But there's already a third party effort. Um, it's like, gosh, the, the name of them is escaping me, but they're being run by... Exactly. <laughs> Andrew Yang is, is involved in exactly. this. Exactly. I mean, these people are non-entities. Um, and we can't even remember that. You can't even remember their names. Well, you know, the question with the third party isn't whether it can win. It's whether it can divert enough votes from either of the main parties to well, there have been the third party candidates, Teddy Roosevelt, for example, who at least we can remember their name. Oh, George Wallace, for sure. But, you know, we don't really remember Ralph Nader as a major politician, but he essentially switched the election from Gore to Bush in, uh, in 2000. So that would be the role of a third party. It's why I'm not eager to see one this time. Um, so there will certainly be some third parties. Libertarians, they've been taken over by a, a very troll-like Trumpy faction of a kind of extreme variety, and they'll have a candidate on the ballot in every state. So if it's close, yeah, it could come down to that. Well, if I could vote, I'd have uh, you as president and Pete Weiner as vice president. That would be a good outcome, wouldn't it? I'd Actually, probably Weiner would be president. You'd be VP. Yeah. There you go. And you, and, and you, Andrew, would be at least secretary of state. 